0: Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. I get the distinct pleasure today to be speaking with the president and CEO of Rheinstahl Corporation, Dieter Moeller. Dieter, thank you so much for being here.
1: Mike, appreciate the opportunity.
0: Absolutely. So let's just share a little bit about Rheinstahl. And I'd love to read some information that I was able to gather. Dieter became president and CEO after his father's retirement quickly led Rheinstahl to be the largest global supplier of GE turbine engine tooling in 2009 with Rheinstahl's successful relationship with GE and their end customers. Dieter led the successful effort to acquire GE's Customer Tooling Solutions business, CTS. Since the acquisition, Dieter has achieved double-digit growth of CTS business with the rest of his team and enhanced the tooling sales and support of GE engine programs. In 2016, CTS became a preferred supplier for Rolls-Royce engine tooling. In addition, Dieter led the strategy to diversify and grow the AMG business, which serves aerospace, space, defense, transportation, and aviation industries. And I share all of that with you, our listeners, to connect, whether your supply chains or the customers that you serve, into the story. I also weave in that Dieter took over the organization when his father retired. So for those family businesses listening, we're going to have a great conversation around family business legacy and around next generation leadership as well. So Dieter, can you share a little bit with us about the family business component of Reinstall? Because some in this in this market see it as a very successful middle market organization, may not know as much about the family legacy. Could you share with us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, family businesses are amazing. I mean, you get such a diverse spectrum of emotions, passions, things that go into developing, maintaining keeping them alive, and when you introduce the family dynamic, I mean, it just, uh, again, just makes it, you know, very, quote-unquote, interesting. So we've seen a lot of that over the years at Reinstahl. My father started Reinstahl back in 67 with a partner, and they were a couple of friends and just looking for a little piece of the American way. Both my parents, my mom and dad, had just come over on the boat from Germany uh, a few years earlier. They just didn't see a lot of opportunity in post-World War II Germany and, and were excited about the American dream. And, you know, they wanted to be a part of that. So they came over to the United States, found each other over here, started a family. And then my dad and his buddy decided to start a company and came up with the name of Reinstahl. And uh, the story started.
0: That's wonderful. That's wonderful. And when did you enter into the family business?
1: A couple of different times. I was okay. standing there when I was probably 10, 11 years old holding a flashlight for my dad that was on a mm-hmm. milling machine and cutting chips, you know, learning the hard way. Yeah. And, and then I came back into the company in 1990 after I had, you know, after I got out of college, graduated,
0: and went into the computer engineering field for a few years. Mm. That's wonderful. Yeah, I share a similar story in that I used to grow up on Saturdays when my dad would go to a client meeting for a special project. I would be running around a distribution center or back in the back of a manufacturing facility at a fairly young age being in a family business. So that history connects with a lot of our listeners who are family business leaders. And I think the weaving in, love to talk about some of the values that drive you today that came from the quintessential American success story that your family has been able to achieve here.
1: Well, it's it's one of the things that you'll never forget. Reinstall today is a very successful global organization, but I remember its early roots. I mean, we were the quintessential, you know, start with nothing company. It was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, my dad's buddy is his partner they started in his garage. I remember growing up not seeing a lot of my dad because he had to support the family and, you know, we didn't have any other means. So he was a car mechanic by trade from Germany and had a full-time job as a VW car mechanic. And then at night he would go and work the Reinstahl job and get that thing on its way. And it's interesting. And I remember in those early years, things were extraordinarily lean and, you know, you would go up and down and always seem like you were teetering on the edge because it's hard. It's tough. Mm-hmm. It is very difficult at times, you know, in starting a business and you don't know where you're at. There's not a lot of money. I think I remember looking through some of the old ledgers and there was a year within that first couple of years, or I think they had a total revenue for the year of twenty some thousand dollars you know, and it's just a matter of trying to figure out who you are, get some work and then figure out how to, find that niche and grow it. Fortunately uh, for my dad, he was able to do that. And they found a niche in cutting a specialized type of gear that's used in aerospace applications. And they became experts in that. And that led to them, early on, they started doing some work for General Electric and their tooling group. And it getting that spline niche, that uh, specialized gear niche, they found something that helped them develop and start a nice growth path from the early 70s through the mid-80s. Then my dad and his partner decided, like a lot of companies in the tooling business, that they wanted to each run their own business. So Carl Lang, who still works with us today, went off and formed his own business of Lang Precision. Reinstahl kept on going. And it was interesting uh, mm-hmm. from working with my dad and being involved in the business early on. My dad was the old school, tough taskmaster type of person. And and I remember as a teenager saying, you know, there's no way I'm never going to work here. Mm. (laughs) I'll never work for you. Mm. Sure enough, 10 years later, uh, that's exactly what I was doing. Right. Mm. So it's amazing. You know, the draw of the Cincinnati area, which is really pretty powerful and the draw of being a part of the family business. Mm. Um, But luckily, I went and did some other things along the way. You know, when I was in college, my first passion was physics, and I still have a passion for that today. And so I was going to go and study theoretical particle physics and, you know, work in that field. I decided a little later on, this was back in the early PC days, that, boy, these personal computers are exciting, and that's very interesting what's going on there. And so I threw on another major. It was interesting I remember talking to my parents again, you know, times are a little bit tough back then. And my dad was always a go for it kind of guy. He was very much the quintessential American entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Don't worry about risks. You know, things are going to take care of themselves. Just be all in and everything you do. But I heard my mom in the background going, oh, my gosh, can he get finished? <laughs> mm-hmm. So I went ahead and got another degree in computer engineering. And then somewhere along the way, um, the field of medicine hit me and I decided I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. So mm. I went pre-med and it actually ended up being very lucky for me. And it was one of those things that looking back now, I realize how there's so many things in life that affect people. And one of the great things, you know, I, I tell a lot of young people, make sure when you're riding the moguls, ride them and let them take you as opposed to fighting them, you know because there's a lot of waves you're gonna come to in life. and if you are a little bit nimble in seeing where they take you, it, it's amazing you know what can happen in your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, during my years in college, I would have there was four or five different career choices that I had very strong passions for. and being in business was not something I was even considering at the time because of the way I worked my schedule, When I uh, decided to go to med school, I had a year off going to med school and graduating from college. And during that year, I decided to do computer engineering and ended up working a fantastic job back when NCR was a big player in PC. So I got on board with NCR in their PC division and got within six months, I wasn't coding anymore. And I was working on the business side of things for them, being a liaison with Microsoft and NCR. And I realized that I just loved the business side of things. And it wasn't too long after that, that I got drawn back into, well, if you like business, why don't you join don't you the family the business? business? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, getting frustrated with some of the things that happened at the Fortune 500 level. I was really excited about being able to come and, and implement some of my ideas and work with a group that I was able to put together. So the idea
0: of going back to a small business really excited me. And the experiences that you had in other areas probably made you even more appreciative to what you had in that family business, joining your family business? Oh, absolutely. Some of the
1: most important lessons that I got were during that time when I was at NCR. Mm -hmm. I met some absolutely phenomenal people that taught me things that I still pick up and
0: run today. So let's talk a little bit about the culture shift of you coming in to lead the organization? There's always a generational shift from parent to child or you know, second generation to first generation. What experiences did you have there? How did the organization values, did they shift when you came in? Did you start adjusting the culture to drive what you felt was most needed for the future? Well, it's interesting. and And with hindsight, the thing that
1: I've realized, and I talk about it with our group at times, or the organizational values didn't change much. The approach is 180 degrees different. Mm -hmm. Again, my dad grew up in that era where micromanagement and basically a very strong leadership style driven from the top was what he was comfortable with. Mm -hmm. I grew up in a situation where I saw the power of bringing great teams of people together and, you know, just... Getting very strong holistic effects when you've got a strong group of really passionate people doing great things and working together. And it just was very different approaches. Now, the company values have been the same the entire time. I mean, if you look at the way things ran underneath my father and then the way it's been running since underneath me, some of the things that are still strong parts of our organization are a truly customer centric focus and doing whatever it takes to make things happen. I mean, it was, uh, there were no excuses is growing up and, and I was watching my dad, you know, when he ran the company and it was the same way, it's not excuses. We just got to perform. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that is still strong today. But again, the approach to the business was much more of a top down approach during my dad's time. And it's a bottom up approach, uh, the way I run it today. Mm-hmm
0: as it relates to just again in doing some research on you and what you're most passionate about the word that came up was passion and can you share a little bit about how you exhibit passion what that means to your organization your leadership team and what you look for in the talent that uh, you hope that joins your organization
1: well it was something that early on in the first few years i didn't even realize i was looking for it and then i found that the people that i made the best team with were people that were strong leaders in and of themselves. I mean, all the way from the individual contributors uh, through management. I mean, I, I like working with people that really have got strong ideas of what they're doing, why they're doing it, and care about things a great deal. And when I take a look at what we do today, the word passion just came out, and I realize. What we're about is passion, passion for what we do, passion for our customers, and being passionate people ourselves, Uh, just doing great work while having a great time doing it. That's wonderful. And you also just celebrated your 50th anniversary, correct? Yeah, it was really exciting. Last year was the 50th anniversary of the organization. Congratulations. Well, thank you very much. It's a little daunting. We do anniversary. Recognition every month in the organization during our our op review meetings, and I saw my name up there with twenty eight years, and I was like, "That's just crazy." I mean, it it seems like it's been five, you know. I I mean, I feel like I'm one of the. Means you you
0: love what you do. Well, that's exactly (laughs) right.
1: That's right, and you know that's that's the whole thing. If you don't love what you do, I just I take a look at all the people that I admire, all the programs. I mean, everything where great things have been done. And it is always done, almost always, by people that just absolutely love what they do and they really care about doing a great job at it. Mm -hmm. So that's where the passion thing came from.
0: So you're also on the executive committee for Ready Cincinnati. You're involved in, you know, your organization employs and is involved in a lot of various work in terms of workforce development, economic development for our region and beyond. And globally I've had people sitting on panels and conversations with workforce. can you share why are you doing that? why are you so involved in the community? why do you feel to get engaged in economic development and workforce is important to you as the CEO?
1: Well, it started fifteen 20 years ago early on after I'd come back into the business and I realized that there was a a real issue with the number of people that are in the skilled trades, and it wasn't just something that was you know, at a particular time or in a particular area, the more I looked around, the more I realized, you know, this is an issue across the United States. And, you know, over the last several years, you know, it's clear that this is an issue around the world. There's a lot of great new fields that people are going into IT and, you know, the biomedical areas. But I think, you know, as I'm watching it from the manufacturing arena, I I realized that manufacturing gets a real short shrift and up until five or ten years ago, every politician I ever heard, you know, when they were talking about it, said, Well, you've got to go and get a four-year degree and, and get a degree in engineering or whatever it is, if you want to be able to support a family. And every time I hear that, I want to, you know, throw something at the radio. I'm like, the most difficult job in our organization, and I hire engineers, I hire accountants, you know, people in finance, marketing, HR a lot of four-year degree bachelor people. But the toughest job to fill in our organization is that in the skilled trades. Mm. And it's getting worse and worse with time. And I think the reason is, is the stereotype still lingers that manufacturing is a dirty, nasty field and parents don't want their kids to be relegated to working in something that, you know, the old Coal and black lung disease and and just, again, that dirty, nasty field. And you go into a modern manufacturing plant and they are some of the coolest facilities, highest tech places in, in the world. We work together very closely with General Electric and some of the other OEMs. You go into their manufacturing facilities and they're as nice as any Silicon Valley Circuit fab lab out there, and it's the same way. You know, are you going to Rheinstahl today, and the equipment we have is far more complex than anything that we use to put men on the moon, and it's fantastic. And it's the same thing happens when we get parents that come in with kids to take a look at our facilities, and it's the same in any of these high tech manufacturing facilities. Their jaws drop, and they're like, Wow, I had no idea. I mean, this looks like it could be a great career. And I tell them, well, if you like the thought of not having six figures in debt after getting out of college, not a- knowing exactly you know, what you're going to be doing and having more job security than any bachelor's field I can think of with the potential, if you're good at six figure salaries, then yeah, this is a great field hmm. and you're building cool stuff. Hmm. And it's something once people realize that they get excited. And I think, again, it just gets short shrift. Manufacturing gets really short shrift. Every time you hear a monthly jobs report come out and for the last 10 or 20 years, I mean, I think over the last 10 years have been like 1.2 million manufacturing jobs that have been lost. That's all they say. What they don't say is it's the unskilled jobs that have been lost. Skilled manufacturing has been growing the entire time and continues to grow. I think last year there was some early on, I read some stat, there was like 388,000 unfilled, highly skilled manufacturing jobs. These are good paying jobs. I mean, they're $20 to $50 an hour jobs with overtime. So you're making a lot of money in these jobs. And this was 388,000 unfilled, skilled manufacturing jobs. And I just heard recently that a year and a half later, that's over 500,000 jobs today. Again, these are jobs that pay extremely well, are in very high-tech facilities, and you've got more job security than you will with any bachelor's degree.
0: So your involvement is to help change the perception and to stand up and share this message with organizations and parents and schools, and how can Reinstall be a key part of that changing of perception? Absolutely. The involvement I have with Ready
1: which is a great organization. I mean, they're doing, you know, impressive economic development Mm -hmm. efforts here in the arena. But one of the things that I'm bringing to the table is let's make sure, I mean, Cincinnati's got a very strong storied history of being in the advanced manufacturing area. And let's focus some of our resources and some of the attention and the energy we're bringing to the table on developing the advanced manufacturing arena. Mm Mm-hmm. It seems like a lot of cities today are all about going after the high tech. And I think it's really important to focus on what the core competencies are in, in the regions. Mm-hmm. And in this region, like I said, it's got a very strong storied history of being strong in the advanced manufacturing area. And I think it's something that we need to put some more focus on. And there's just a lot of upside in doing that.
0: And we need to be proud of. I know I was recently at a manufacturing facility that Back in the late 70s with Centennials, one of Centennial's major customers for about a decade and a half. And the legacy, it's like the organization stopped in time. Like they are no longer celebrating the successes. And if you walk back, I think the their storyboard ended like 18 years ago. Exactly. Right? And why aren't we telling the story? And if you're a new employee walking in through the halls, well, they're not telling the story of what's going on right now, right? We as manufacturers in this great community that's built around manufacturing need to bring that back and really be proud of what we're doing today.
1: Well, and it was interesting. A couple of years ago, you know, we work with a lot of the local community colleges, and and I was taking a walk with some of the folks from Sinclair through our manufacturing facility. And one of them asked a great question as we were talking to our machinist, and something I really had never done. They said, what got you into this? And it was just an eye-opening thing for me because I was hearing, well, my brother was in this, my father was in this, my uncle was in this. And it just popped into my head. And I'm like, that's the reason all these people are here Mm -hmm. because there's no path to get into this. Mm -hmm. If you're going to go and if you want to design, if you want to go into computers like I did or become a mechanical engineer, you know exactly what you need to do. You get good grades in high school. You go take your ACT or SAT get into a college like Ohio State, University of Cincinnati, Purdue, you know, these kind of great schools. You go get your four-year bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering or some other engineering field. And then you go out and you join on with a Fortune 500 company and sit in a cubicle behind a workstation and do your field. But if I want to be a skilled machinist or a skilled electrician or a welder or whatever it is, how do you do that? And in that moment, There is no path for that here in the United States. I mean, we don't have structured, formalized apprenticeship programs like they do in Europe, in particular in Germany. Mm -hmm. And there's no good way for people to get into that. So they only do it because they had somebody they knew that went into it. And it's interesting because there's a lot of people out there that really enjoy working with their hands. I mean, they want to build things. And they like being a part of something tangible as opposed to doing something with a design. If you're building a, you know, in our field, you know, you're building a compressor table to assemble the highest pressure portion of the GE90 engine, which is a critical, critical process. If it's done right, you get a great engine out of it. If it's done wrong, you know, you have all kind of balance and vibration issues. And the tolerances on this work—I mean, you're doing artwork, you're building things that Mm. have got to be within a couple ten thousandths of an inch over several feet—and it's an amazing artisan skill that just isn't out there. Mm. But again, if you want to do that, how do you get into that? Mm. And it's something we have to do—is figure out how one to get over that perception issue in manufacturing, but two, create some paths so that if that's the type of thing they want to do. There's a way for them to get into that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, are you involved in helping align with educators and creating career pathways? And you mentioned earlier that you have people come through your facility. Is that on a regular basis? Have you built apprenticeship programs? What are you doing within your organization to change that?
1: Uh, yes, to all of the above. Okay. Um, you know, we made a decision a few years ago to actually invest in doing this type of work, and we created a executive level position, a vice president of corporate development. We brought Amy Meyer on board and a main part of her charter is to go and put some energy into getting this thing done. So we're working together with a lot of different organizations, the community colleges, but we're also working with the high schools and grade schools in the area, working with their counselors, developing things, you know, within the Ohio manufacturing arena and the organizations that are developed to workforce development in Ohio. You know, we regularly bring on groups of grade school kids and high school kids and try to get their parents along with them because that's an important point so they can see what this is all about. And, you know, we work with some of the local schools. Butler Tech is somebody we partner with, and they've got a program together with Coleraine High School where we've had hundreds of their kids in over at our facility. And we do that. They've got manufacturing days. We get some of the local people, politicians and people out here to see what's going on in that arena. So yeah, we're doing a lot of those development efforts. That's
0: wonderful. And you mentioned earlier that Germany, there's a statistic that I had read a couple of years ago that over 50% of kids in Germany go through apprenticeship programs. And here in the United States, it's only 3 to 5%, if we're lucky, that get to experience Yeah,
1: because it's not there. It's not there. In, in Germany, as you're going through grade school and then you start the equivalent of a high school education, you're deciding, okay, now do I go the university path or do I go with the structured apprenticeship program? Mm. And these aren't easy. I mean, if you want to be a, an electrician in Germany, you know, you need to go and go through a three-year apprenticeship There's examinations. I mean, you need certifications. And it's a very valid form of lifestyle choice to pick for people. And here in the United States, there just isn't an op. There are some vocational schools and there's some areas like this. And then you get some employers out there that do apprenticeship type of programs. But it's very ad hoc. There's nothing formal and there's no significant structure for kids to even understand this. And actually a lot
0: of the guidance are in high schools as well. Mm-hmm. I would encourage our listeners, whether you're in greater Cincinnati, Ohio, or in any community that you're in, in the U.S. or abroad, lean into this particular discussion because in most communities, there's work going on by organizations like yours, Dieter, that we're hungry for employers to show up to this conversation, right? That both educational institutions and Elementary school, middle school, high school, most companies are around. You have a elementary, middle, or high school around you or a vocational school around you and go knock on their door and come up with a solution to help elevate this career pathway. Right? We encourage organizations all the time to do this. And oh, by the way, the residual benefits, if you listen to the episode with Steve Schiffman from Michaelman Unconscious Capitalism, He talks about some of his greatest employee development comes from volunteering and being engaged. And your employees get more fulfilled and feel like they're giving back while you're helping educate both students as well as their parents and grandparents about the opportunity to engage in this great employer in our community who supports the education system. So, it's just that we've covered this in quite a few episodes that organizations need to show up to this conversation and get involved. And people are hungry and waiting for the manufacturers who aren't doing this to start doing this. It's the only way we change the statistics from 3% to 50% and to help educate those students that there is a pathway. So, thank you for your leadership in that. Going into some of the Reinstahl way. I love the description and how organizations and knowing leaders that are at your organization today, that really your culture buys into the Reinstahl way. And I know you have a concept of just do. And you mentioned it even earlier that it sounds like it came from your father's way of leadership that you've been able to, that's the values that haven't changed of just doing and satisfying the customer's need. Can you share a little bit more with us about that? Yeah, when we take a look at what
1: we call the Reinstall Way, it's just an approach we take, and it's very much a customer centric approach. It's something important, you know. The precepts of the Reinstall Way are providing an outstanding customer experience. You know, running the business in a way that's operationally excellent. You know, the third one is doing whatever it takes. I've got a sign on my uh, door at work that one of our associates put up there, and it's just. It's our logo and it just got the word do on it mm-hmm. yeah it was interesting I remember telling somebody years ago I said trying's not good enough we've got to do mm-hmm. so don't try do And then the fourth one is everything we do for every part of the organization whether you're in accounts receivable in accounting or you're in marketing or you're an engineer, you're a machinist salesperson whatever it is I give everybody the challenge of be the best at your field, and figure out how to set the standard at what you do, and then move it. So all those things together are what we call the Rheinstahl way. You know, it's all within the context of our values. You know, our values are pretty simple. It's passion, collaboration, and integrity. But within that, so, you know, you got to bring that. Those are the givens you got to bring to the table. And then we take a look at people, and we're like, this is what we're about. And this is the way we approach things every day. And I ask people, in everything you're doing, does it meet the Reinstell way? Is it a part of the Reinstell way? And it's just a fairly simple way of looking at things, but it's something that I'm pretty excited about because I just don't see that many people out there doing that. You find some organizations that do look at things that way in various pieces, but I just think it's something that is a very simple approach to developing a
0: great organization. Mm -hmm. Dieter is the CEO of a very successful company. Where do you turn for continued growth, continued learning as the CEO of your organization? Well, I
1: mean, uh, one of the ways is through organizations like yours, Mike. I mean, I think, uh, media today just gives you a lot of opportunities whether it's through podcasts you know whether it's watching videos i still like the old fashioned books as mm-hmm. well and then interacting with people that are doing great things in their field just i mean i think that goes a long way mm-hmm. it is interesting because you got a lot of people that do give back to the world in pretty powerful ways and you know just following various blogs by people like bill gates i mean bill gates is very passionate about bringing back great ideas and keeping your mind nimble and open-minded. Mm-hmm. And again, having met him and worked with him a little bit back in the late 80s and early 90s, you know, it's, it's fun to watch him in the role he's in today. And and I just think he has a great approach in bringing that to the everyday world. You know, another person that I'd never actually met him, but, you know, you saw a lot of things when General Electric back in the late 80s and 90s and Jack Welch and one of the things i remember getting an mba in the mid 90s was how strongly the the way ge approached business and management made a difference and you know it seemed like every other case study that you did in mba you know was talking about ge and the way they did their approaches mm-hmm. and jack welch today does the same thing i mean he does a lot of giving back by podcasts and the way that he, you know, interacts on social media. And it's exciting. There yeah. There's so many ways of picking the brains of people that have changed the world. And I think it's fantastic. Mm-hmm.
0: An incredible amount of transparency. In Absolutely. That today as well. Yeah. yeah, that's wonderful. Well, Dieter, we want to thank you again for joining us today. This is also manufacturing month And we're excited to spotlight your organization for the great things you're doing in this community and abroad and the encouragement that you've provided us all today to just do and to go after some of these key topics to help change the face and the brand of manufacturing.
1: Well, Mike, I appreciate the opportunity to be here. I like what you guys are doing and like to be a part of it. Thank you.
0: Companies and teams with authentic leaders attract the best talent, are the most productive, and keep people around the longest. Are you an authentic leader? Go to TalentMagnetInstitutePodcast.com slash authentic to find out if you're ticking all the boxes. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is powered by Centennial, a talent strategy and executive search firm, and the Talent Magnet Institute. You can engage with us at Talent Magnet I on Twitter, or Talent Magnet Institute on LinkedIn and Facebook. Please communicate by using hashtag Talent Magnet. Find us in your favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and leave a review, as well as share with a colleague. You can also listen at talentmagnetpodcast.com. Our podcast studio is based in greater Cincinnati, Ohio. We are supported by our listeners, clients, and partners from all over the world. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is made possible by a great team that includes Janelle Spence and Christine Lewis of Centennial, Josh Chappelle and Adam Smith of Soundpress, produced by Chris Madine of New Fidelity Studios, and Audra Casino and Megan Doherty of One Stone Creative. Music written by DJ Corbett and Chris Madine, and myself, your host, Mike Sipple Jr.